Guess who's back? It's the real Wrestle Pro. Ginger Jedi mind tricks teach you all that he knows. Had nobody in charge, and he's got all the news. Real talk, straight shooting interviews. Join the queue, put you in a submission. Twenty bucks. Oh wow. Nelson. Okay, shows making flights. Still got time for a podcast. Buck never stops, and he's gonna let you know that. Welcome again to the Pat Buck Show. I'm joined alongside KM, and this week we have a special guest. It's always a special guest, but another buddy of ours, Matt Seidel. You may know him as Evan Bourne in WWE, but he's also, if you're an independent wrestling fan, you know this man has traveled the world and pretty much done and worked about, you know, worked everywhere and done just about everything. We get into all sorts of things, but before we get to that, if you can, if you're on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. Do us a favor and let us know if you appreciate this show, podcast, whatever you want to call it. And also, if you want to get more stuff, check out patreon.com slash patbuckshow. We have three different tiers for you to hop on, hop aboard, whether you're an up-and-coming wrestler, whether you're just someone that checks out the show and wants to see what's going on, or if you want to kind of step beyond the guardrail, beyond the curtain, and see how a promotion books things and does things. It's interactive. There's all sorts of stuff there on patreon.com slash patbuckshow. Here's the interview. All right, at this time, we're joined with a good friend of ours, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Seidel. What's going on, Matt? All right, thanks. I mean, normally when they, they introduce me, I get a lot of accolades and all this stuff. But you're right, it's really not necessary. I, I, I do that sometimes, but it just feels awkward when it's friends. It's like, oh, former this and this person. It's just like... It's kind of a hangout, so. It becomes a weird interview. It's like, tell us how you started in wrestling. Like, I personally don't even like doing, like, I turn down podcasts and interviews because I hate these same questions over and over. Tell us how you began. Tell us about this. I was like, oh, it just sounds like, I don't know. Do you, do you, want, do you want us to pull up your Wikipedia and start reading off your accolades and your championship no, history? Literally the number one thing that people do in interviews is just read your Wikipedia page. Like, even when I did media for WWE, like, you would go to the radio station and like you would just see them reading off your Wikipedia that they had printed out right there. And it's just like, you know, we're promoting an event for later tonight, so we could just talk about that. But Or you could ask me about how when I was 17 years old, I was the youngest licensed re- professional wrestler in Missouri that no one cares about. <laughs> Is that true? Are, I, there wasn't regulations that you had to be 18 like in New York? Or did you slip through yeah, the cracks? I mean, there was an athletic commission and everything, and they just did like my – my shady, wonderful first promoter was actually really kind in this regard in that, you know, coming from the BYD world, from the backyard wrestling world, I was more than ready for the indie scene. And uh, yeah, he sat me down with the commissioner and he was just like, yeah, don't worry. He's safe. He can do it. It'll be fine. And then they had me wrestle like, you know, the, the local vet under a hood. And that was how I kind of made my pro debut. What was your backyard wrestling name? If you don't mind, was it Matt Seidel or no? No, no. It, well, first it was Lance Mysterio, nice. and, then, and then it was Lance Seidel, okay. and then when I started doing indies, they made me just wrestle as Matt, M-A-T-T. Oh, my God. Whose idea was that? Yeah. The, the same promoter that got me the wrestling license. They, they claimed I wasn't big enough to have a last name, and basically treated me like that the entire time I was there till I left for IWA Mid-South. Height requirements to have a last name? Yeah, height and I guess height and weight, apparently. You know, how, you know, to entertain people, you must be a certain height and weight. You guys know these standards. Right. So we're all, I think we're all kind of around the same age, though. Did you, what year did you start it? Uh, like my, yeah, 99, 2000 oh, uh, wow. was when I debuted. And then, I mean, I was backyard wrestling, I guess, b- before then. But yeah, it was back in like the ECW hardcore wrestling, lots of guys bleeding, you know, fun stuff like that, that era. And were you like, what was your background before wrestling? Because you've always been one of the leanest. I, I feel like you were one of the really first guys that like had that, like, like as cameras changed and high definition started to become the thing, like you're so lean that it kind of made you appear even bigger. And I feel like you're one of the first guys to be known for that outside of like a, you know, I know Rick Rude was very lean, but were you always in shape? Were you a gymnast? Like what was your background? Yeah. I mean, I was just a maniac kid growing up, but it wasn't until I was, I think 15, I made me as my freshman year, going in, going into my freshman year of high school, 
the local wrestling coach uh, who was a neighbor of ours, he lived just up the street, he recruited me to the team because they didn't have anyone for the 103 pounds. But at this time, I'm telling you, I weighed 83 pounds going into my freshman year of high school. Wow. And yeah, that's real. I was like four foot nine. So like right now I'm huge. So, <laughs> but like at that time, at that time, I didn't, I, I always like, I had taken Taekwondo, I had done gymnastics, um, but I, I wasn't like, I had never lifted a weight in my life. And go, that summer going into my freshman year, they had this course called PTA, Pain, Torture and Agony. And it was just learning how to lift with the wrestling team. And from then on, from like basically that 16 age on, I was lifting. I was in the gym every day. So it's just a hardcore. And I knew I was undersized. I knew I was smaller. And I just had a mentality of like needing to outwork everybody. So even when I would like, I would go to my wrestling school and on the way home, I'd, I'd work out. And then I'd go, you know, then have a muscle milk protein shake, then have horrible diarrhea, then get up the next day and do it all over again. And it was like, I mean, I just really was upset. Like, I became obsessed with lifting through amateur wrestling. And I really only did high school wrestling because I wanted to be a pro wrestler. Even, like, one of the first days of uh, wrestling school, like, you know, the wrestling um, the wrestling room in our high school was in the back, like, this secret hot box room, like, a small place with just a bunch of mats. And before practice one day, all the kids were, like, picking on me. And somehow I found myself literally lift, hoisted in the air amongst them. And uh, on my way down, I grabbed a kid with my legs and gave him a shoot hurricane rana. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day, we got to talk about how this isn't pro wrestling. And I just kept thinking, well, it isn't for you guys, but it will be for me. <laughs> so you knew from a young age you were going to do this. And what was, because you've, I mean, essentially been everywhere. And, you know, was it always, was WWE your goal? Was Japan your goal? Because you're one of those guys that just is floats around uh, everywhere. Yeah, th I mean, my first goal when I got into wrestling was just to, like, get in a wrestling ring. That's about as far as I thought it would go, just to get in there. Uh, then after I saw my first indie show, I decided there was a, a, a jobber in the three-way opening match. And I thought to myself, God, someday, if I worked hard enough and work out every day for the rest of my life, someday I could be that guy. That, okay. I mean, like, I mean, there were a couple hundred people at the show. It seemed like a big deal to me as a kid and... I mean, I was impressed by them. Uh, but then once I started wrestling more, uh, that's kind of like, at, that's around the time I linked up with Delirious and we started going on the road together. And he was the one who, I, I had seen some Japanese wrestling, but it was all death matches. Then I would watch Jacob 94, 95, and I started watching Toriyuman. And my goal was to be a Japanese wrestler, but I never thought that it would be possible because Toriyuman never brought over Americans. And I mean, I just didn't expect to be able to do that. But yeah, in my head, I'm just a, I, I'm a Japanese wrestler. That's sort of the mentality I've always had. Wait, Seidel, question. Were you, you said you were, did a lot of backyarding back in the day. Were you a part of that video game that Sanjay Dutt and all those guys were in? Like, like No, like that M-Dog and those guys were in? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I wasn't. Um, they, they were like sort of inspirations to me as a backyard wrestler, though. Like M-Dog and Josh Prohibition, like when I, I mean, and they were from Ohio, so these are Midwest guys. And actually... I somehow bought the line that before Monday Night Raw, when they said, don't try this at home, it's by trained professionals only. So when we started like playing in the backyard on the trampoline, we were being like extra careful and extra safe until one day my friend, he was like a caddy at a golf course. And one of the other kids gave him a tape of them backyard wrestling. And they were just wild kids in a barn beating the trash out of each other. I mean, using boards and chairs and barbed wire. And I was like, oh, we can just do this. Like we can just do it. And then after that, I just started doing it. And the mentality at that time when we all started wasn't to make it to WWE. It was to like start your own ECW and grow your indie to get a TV deal right. because getting to WWE was such a lofty idea. It was only for crazy dreamers, people that were uh, kind of didn't live in reality. The, the more possible thing to do is create your own thing and grow that. And then, use that to become like a star or at least a local celebrity. Now I met you in OVW and I remember like during that time period, it's uh, kind of goes with what you just said that it, it, it seemed like a lofty dream. And during that time period, I mean, there was just monsters. I feel like, you know, like just bigger dudes. So I remember when we heard that you were hired, it was like, Oh wow, this is, this is pretty awesome. Like what led to that? And like, you know, how did you essentially thought it was so far away, but it happened to you. 
like what led to those things to get you down there? Oh man, I'm just a weasel. You know, I weasel my way into everywhere I've ever been. Like, you know, whatever the rules are, I just assume they apply to everybody except me and then proceed. And and really my hiring is based almost 100% on one guy, Mike Bucci, Nova. Uh, He was a, like, he came to that first indie. He saw me wrestle when I was still 17, I think. And uh, somehow he kept his tabs on me. He got to that position. And his last act, as he's getting fired, as he's getting kicked out the door, he processes my my thing. I mean, I came and I did a tryout, um, and the, and Johnny Ace told me, "Yeah, we'll we'll hire you if we're doing a cruiserweight division, but we're not hiring guys your size." I said, "Cool, no worries. I'll be in Dragon Gate." Like I was completely happy. I was ecstatic with what I was doing. Uh, I w- like I love I loved it, uh, and I never expected that to get this call. And then just yeah, one day I'm in Tokyo and I hit 18 numbers on the calling card using a pay phone to call my cell phone to check the messages. And it's like, Hey, this is Mike Bucci, WWE talent relations. Uh, you, do you want to come to a tryout? And he put, I mean, he, he slid it under the radar. He just said, trust me, you should hire this guy. And then he asked me, Oh, do you want to go to Florida or Kentucky? And he said, yeah, you know, everybody's moving to Florida. And I said, well, I want to go to Kentucky because I could drive there from St. Louis. Okay. And uh, at that time, Cabana and Ace were down there and they let me sleep on their couch the first few weeks I was there. But even when I showed up to OVW, they're like, who the, who the hell are you? What are you doing here? I was like, uh, they told me to be here. And I was still like my head had been my first real concussion had happened that Saturday before I like I wrestled in Japan on Friday, flew all the way back to Chicago, wrestled for Ring of Honor on Saturday, got a horrible concussion like woke up in a daze in the locker room at 1 a.m. My girlfriend's like knocking on the door, the back door of the Chicago field house. Like, hey, uh, Matt, are you still in there? And I sort of like snapped out of that concussed zone and got home on Sunday and packed my bags. And like on Monday, I was at OVW. Right. And you didn't, did you, you didn't go to FCW, right? You just debuted right from there. No, so. I went like, they sent me to FCW for a couple of months. Like at, right when I got to FCW, somehow the reputation of me being a good hand must have somebody helped me out with this one and I got to work with Floyd Mayweather and the big show on their Wrestlemania match so they flew me out to Vegas I got to meet Shane McMahon and I was just sort of there to be a bump dummy if they needed me which they really didn't because Mayweather's a pro and big show's a pro and they were just like we got this we don't you know we don't need you but thanks for being here and um, then after that I just like got to this point where like even I think the coaches were frustrated with me because they would want us to practice a match on Tuesday afternoon to go sure. to some bar down the street and to do that match later that night. And I mean, you know, I, I had done some wrestling already. I had been wrestling five days a week. I didn't, I didn't really think that doing practice matches was something I was going to do in the afternoon. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I didn't have the great, I had not the greatest attitude. And, um, I was like, oh boy, this is just, I'm just going to be stuck here in developmental for forever. And that's when I just told WWE that I was going home to St. Louis for my brother's graduation from college. It just so happened to line up with the events, the pay-per-view, the Raw and the SmackDown that week. And I said, well, you know, since I'm going to be flying myself to St. Louis, perhaps maybe I could come backstage. And, And that was from... I don't. Do you guys remember this wrestler in Texas? His name was Biohazard. Of course, Jacus Pliskin. Yeah, Jacus. Well, so Jacus called me one day when I was living in Florida. Like, no, nobody in the office cared about me. He calls me. He said, "Hey, bro, can you get me a dark match?" And I was like, "No, I can't get you a dark match." <laughs> I, I've I've been under contract for you know eight months at this point, maybe nine months, less than a year, and I'm thinking. I've never had a dark match. What the fuck? I'm the one who should have the dark match. And so basically this was my little subversive plot to trick Mark Carano into letting me go backstage. And once I was backstage, you know, then I got the chance to go in the ring before the show. And Jamie Noble remembered me from our matches at IWA Mid-South. And then he worked with me on the Sunday. And then on Monday, they gave me and him the dark match. And then on Tuesday, I debuted on ECW. Whoa! Yeah. Wow. So you <laughs> bang boom. So wait, when you but when you went for your brother's graduate, did any of that ever really happen, or was that just completely made up BS? 
No, no, my my brother, I, I on the Saturday, like I went, my I drove down to Mizzou. My younger brother graduated. We took a couple pictures, and then yeah, then we then I had to get to Raw, or like I think as a pay per view, and then Raw SmackDown that week. Yeah, but I mean, it was just I was looking for a way to get to the show, and I knew I wasn't gonna get called up by like the system. It was sort of Wild West at this time, not like what um, NXT is now. This was like fcw that still had cans of beans in the corner and like it was it was one of these ones where it was old school wrestling if you were going to do it you had to do it yourself you had to like you know deem yourself worthy and then show up and, and get a shot and i mean i really i come in from dragon gate i had a chip on my shoulder i thought everybody in dragon gate was better wrestlers than everybody at ovw uh and actually ov the talent at ovw was even better than the roster talent or the fcw talent a lot it was just a lot of guys that didn't wrestle the way I did. And I was like, I was certain that the style of wrestling that like the Masato Yoshino, Naruki Doi, Dragon Kid, Sima, that these guys were the best wrestlers in the world. And so what we were doing was was awesome. Uh, I just had to find guys that wanted to play that game with me, which at, at OVW, there was sort of like two camps. The guys who were like obsessed with wrestling, like the uh, Kurt Hawkins, and Matt Cardona, these those guys that were just like they they wanted to talk wrestling, they wanted to learn, they wanted to do all this stuff, and then there were the guys that were like all on the gas, and it was just all about the look right. and the push and the gimmick. And I mean, you know, that's just we as we all know, that's not it's nonsense. You have to have all that and the substance behind it. Well, I remember one time um, this actually, you probably don't even know this. Um, it was like one of the rare snowstorms that ever happened in Louisville. And they canceled developmental practice. So, you know, Rip was actually having a practice at night. And everyone figured, even though it was a snowstorm during the day, so day classes were canceled. And Rip kind of made a speech because I was doing both classes. So Rip was like, hey, you know, um, I'm just going to tell you guys, you guys work harder because none of the developmental guys, none of them will are training right now. Five minutes later, you walk through the door <laughs> to show up to train with us. I went, that's fucking awesome. Like, uh so you were the only dude that showed up when class was canceled to come back to our the other class and train. I thought that was cool. Yeah, man. Like the the thing about Rip was I loved the way he yelled at people, including me. It really helped. Like it was really helpful because what he said was like, "Come on, stupid! Like, what are you doing looking this way when you should be looking that way?" I mean, it just it made so much sense to me, and he just drove these points home, and he held everybody to a really high standard. Which is sort of like, I mean, like in Dragon Gate, you weren't allowed to fuck up. Like it was, it was elite. It was against the rules to make a mistake, and, and that's sort of what Rip was holding his guys to. It's like there couldn't be any uh, holes in your game. And I mean, I had tons of holes. I still do. But it's like we're that the you know, his his method of doing it was just crazy. And I, I love that's my kind of wrestling coach. Very cool. Uh, you said Dragon Gate. So going over there, it was training like. You had no holes. You couldn't have holes in your game, but you need the matches or the training. It was both, right? I mean, I didn't do the dojo there because as soon as I went over, I was on the road. But we would train before the show. And, I mean, it was it was like after the show that people would get yelled at. I mean, like, if, if the hot tag comes and there was even a hesitation, I mean, a hesitate, you hesitate, you hesitate for one second, then you get the move and you hit it. That's not going to be good enough. It was unacceptable. Um because it was a performance and we were there, we were the professionals and the crowd pays good money to see the show. And this was sort of my mentality even when I was doing indie shows was people work very hard Monday to Friday. They have to, like, I mean, we suffer during the week with these jobs. And then finally the reprieve comes. You pay your 20 bucks and you get to sit down at a wrestling show. And if these guys do some stuff where you can tell they could have worked harder and done a better job, then that's like, to me, I wanted to deliver the fans the price of their ticket in the first match so like tonight or last night when ufc after the fir- after the first match in ufc happened uh i knew i got my money's worth on the pay-per-view and that's since i'm always like curtain jerking i was always first match i wanted to give them their 20 bucks worth then that way if they got a call and they had to leave they could uh they could <laughs> get their money's worth and be fine Okay, so actually i wanted to ask you something because i didn't i didn't do any research i'm just kind of winging it i'm going off of memory if if I'm wrong, I don't know if I am though. Uh, when they banned the shooting star from Billy Kidman, were you the one who brought it back? 
And if so, yeah. did you just do it? I mean, did you even get that green lit or you just knew it was so beautiful the second they saw it, they would just okay it? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So I didn't get it green lit necessarily by myself. Uh, when I basically like, you know, I, I, I just made my own debut. Uh, and then after doing that, uh, of course I was just jobbing or doing a roll up. So there was no worry about doing the shooting star press because it was like common knowledge. It was banned. And uh, I was in, I, I was doing it as my finisher in developmental. That's I, I made, it made me the OVW heavyweight champion for a few months. Um, but in SCW, I mean, I just, nobody cared and no, like, there's no, nobody's going to go to bat for you because that wasn't like, I mean, the Vince McMahon banned it. It was a, it was a band move. And, um, so I just figured I sort of put this plan in motion in my head, like, okay, I'm going to do something else for my finisher for the first six months to one year. But by then I'll have earned enough trust and they'll, they'll know that what I do is safe and I'll, I'll get to do the move. Um, but it basically just happened in like three weeks or something. <laughs> yeah, I really was like, okay, I'll be patient. I'll wait six months. But what happened is, is the work, the agents started standing up for me because they really knew that I could do it safely. And what was crazy is they said, you can't do a shooting star press, but you can do a 450. And I was like, I will kill somebody with my elbows. I could hurt myself. A 450 is right. dangerous. I'm not doing that. Like I do this one move perfectly. Like this is what I do. I don't do another move off the top rope. This is my signature thing. It's like, it's what's going to set me apart from everybody else. But I wasn't like, they're not going to let me do it. I can't believe it. Like, I, I was just like, in time, I'll earn the trust that I need and I'll be able to do this. Um, but it was just after a couple of weeks, like one day, Johnny Ace just came in and he says, you know, can kids show me the kids show me the move. And I did it on the crash pad. Then I did it to the, I mean, they just kept making me do it. I didn't even have like knee pads on and stuff because it was before the show, but I just kept doing it and just making it look pretty and, and trying to prove that I could do it very well. And then that night on ECW, they decided to let me give it to Matt Stryker, who went to bat for me and said, Hey, let him do it to me. I, you know, I trust him. And actually it was one of the worst ones I ever did. It was one of the more stiff ones. And he gets to the back and he's like, it didn't hurt at all. Good job. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> stood up for me and then from then on it was just you know the the the, the ban was lifted and initially the day they wanted to lift the ban was like um i don't know i think we were doing shows in texas and it was one of the rare times vince mcmahon was not at the show so they couldn't ask him to get it lifted so they said you know give us another week and we'll see what we can do that next week i got the green light and you know things really started to roll from there Say when you when you did the whole little story that you just said where you went back home then got yourself to TV and kind of worked your own way. Did you wind up catching heat down in FCW when you went back? They're like, wow, this guy was slick. Look what he pulled. No, no, I think they were. I think like uh, I'm trying to think if maybe Steve Kern was actually at that taping. I, I don't know whether I caught heat or not. I wouldn't. I wasn't paying attention, or I wouldn't have sold it anyway. Um, <laughs> Like, you know, I don't think I, I wasn't, this isn't a story I was telling people, yeah, I booked myself, guys, you should do it too. I just went and did it. And then when I got back to developmental, I was like, I didn't even want to show back up there. I wanted to be back on the road. And it happened so fast. Like, I, I did the ECW on Tuesday. The next week I debuted as Evan Bourne. One week later, I was on the road. And I was on every single show, every single live event, every single super show. From that point on, I was five days a week on hard. And so, like, even when they wanted me to come back to developmental, I was like, it's Tuesday, I'm dead. Like, I'm not, I can't go in here. I'm, you know, this is my one day off or whatever, which actually was Wednesdays. I would get back on a Wednesday, and then Thursday would be off, and then Friday I was right back on the road. I mean, it was tentative because I was like, I remember when they would put up the list, red team, blue team, and, and it would just have the names of the live event people, and my name kept showing up on it every week. And there was no guarantee that you were going to be on it, and – I mean, that was just like every week I was just like, yes, where am I going this weekend? Like, how much is this rental car? But actually, right at the beginning, I was still getting for about two months. I got the developmental rental car. So I would drive Kali around or Festus and um, Festus uh, and Ray Gordy. Yeah. I mean, like, so I get to drive those guys around. And man, we just it, it was awesome. I mean, I really loved that first. My first year on the road was so good. It was really great times. So now, do you find yourself liking a schedule like a WWE being tied down to one company, or do you like it better that you can kind of pick and choose and do your own thing now? Like, I think right now, are you essentially, a, I guess, a free agent, right? Do you have any things that you want to accomplish or do? Because, like I said, you've been everywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of goals that I'd like to accomplish. I mean, I still feel like I've got a lot left in me that I'm better than ever. Like, you know, I feel like Cody Garbrandt ready to make that comeback. You know, I feel like I've, I've gotten dropped three times, and, and, it, and it, but I got my eyes on the prize for real. Um, but to me, it doesn't matter. Like, if a million people see me wrestle or a hundred people see me wrestle, as long as I do like my job well, I, I don't have that. Like, oh, if I don't wrestle at WrestleMania, it's not as important. If I wrestle at like limitless wrestling's fifth year anniversary to me that still counts it still matters it's still sure. important um I, you know I, I wrestling for companies has been a challenge for me because i have trouble saying no so for example when i'm hurt my neck's messed up my shoulders hurt uh i'll still just show up and wrestle anyway and that that's been right. a problem because i'll feel like i owe them these matches because they're paying me and so but now i've got the common sense to say hey i'm hurt i need time off and most companies wouldn't have a problem with it. Although in my head, I just thought they think I'm just trying to get out of the work. It's my like Midwest mentality. Is I was just, I mean, when I was wrestling for Ian Rotten, I, I broke my wrist and I show up the next weekend in the cast ready to wrestle. And guess what? They put you in the ring. When I was at Impact, my last few matches, my neck was so bad. I was just dying. But, you know, they'd still put you in the ring because it was good enough. And everybody's like, oh, we can't tell you're hurt. And I was like, well, listen, I'm telling you I'm hurt. And they would say, hey. You have the option. Do you want to stay at home? And I'd say, no, I'm going to come work because I'm an idiot. Uh, or, you know, I'm just fool, foolhardy enough to think that by that on Monday, even though I hurt by Friday, I'll be able to survive uh, a match. And be, it's because, you know, well, the x-rays and the MRI said, hey, you don't need surgery. So well, if you don't need surgery, you should be wrestling. Well, there is a place between surgery and wrestling where you should just be resting. And really, even, even when I came back from my knee surgery, in 2019 i still had neck and shoulder lingering neck and shoulder issues which because of quarantine being stuck at home i've really been able to focus and and i'm not where i'd like to be but i'm i'm getting in the ring at my wrestling school and i'm taking a german every once in a while and i'm taking suplexes and feel, feeling a lot better but yeah i got a lot left in the tank you know for, for me a company like aew represents everything i've been working towards my whole career you know, the, all the things that the Young Bucks have done, I would love to be a part of. I think they're, like, the best act in wrestling. So if I could be a part of AEW, that'd be an honor, an honor of mine. But really, just the fact that it exists sort of has gotten my original intentions in wrestling, which was to change the business, to change the stereotypes, to change what people think of when they watch wrestling. Uh, that's what I wanted to do, and now people are doing it. So it's like, I don't even have to do it. But it would be cool to be a part of that. Uh, I've always been a part of Ring of Honor since... I mean, when I was in college, it was like, I will, I will die to make it on these Ring of Honor cards. I don't care how much class I have to miss. I don't care how many hours I have to drive. I'm going to get to Ring of Honor because that because it's where wrestling is respected. And that's what I want for wrestling. And, um, you know, I was there from like 2004 to 2008 or something like that. And then again, from 2014 to 2018. So I've got a good history with them. And I really am all about that mentality of wrestling so i'd like to be you know i could be a part of ring of honor again uh i mean you know my my my, my phones i'm not not answering phone calls but i do really love being an indie wrestler making my own schedule so that way if i am hurt i uh, you know i just take the time off or i schedule it because in 2012 i had a really bad motorcycle injury that ruined my foot and so no matter what happens my foot will always be you know, a, an injury that I'm uh, having to overcome. Mm -hmm. So I constantly dealing with that. And, you know, it, it's up to a wrestling company, their jobs to book me, my jobs to be honest with them about whether I can work or not. And so the, the getting through this foot injury is just a, um, an everyday challenge that I go through. Like I'm in a ton of pain, it just depends on what the day is, but, um, limiting my schedule to like two matches a week is much safer than trying to bang out five unless you're doing five, you know, six man tags on live events. But if I was trying to do, you know, three TV matches, singles, that, that would be a challenge for me and I, it would be a concern. And so I want to be healthy enough. If I'm going to sign a contract with a company, I want to be able to say, Hey, you can use me how you want in the role that I belong in, which is obviously champion carrying the company on my back, making everybody else look really good. And if I can't do that, I don't want to be performing, um, so yeah, I, I got a lot left in the tank. I got a lot of matches left in me. Whoever wants them, you know, they can pay for them. I'm not cheap. Like I'm not, I, I don't work for pennies, but I love wrestling and I love making 
I love getting in the ring with guys and handing the knowledge down one-to-one, the same way Jamie Noble beat the trash out of me, and I was able to learn a lot of valuable lessons. Same way Kid Cash beat the crap out of me when I was a 17-year-old indie kid, just chopped me to hell. But they, you know, these are the lessons that you can't get at your local wrestling federation. That's why your local fed brings in a guy like me to come in and help share the knowledge, share the information, share what we love. Uh, the only way we know how is through chopping people. <laughs> How's, uh, when did you open your school? It's in Florida, correct? Yeah. So I started doing like uh, working with the WWN and their school. Right. Uh, but but I just wanted to do my own thing. I couldn't really work with the other co-trainer that I was working with. He was just worthless. Uh, so I started doing my own thing here at the side dojo here in Clearwater, Florida. And man, things have never been better because I teach wrestling the way I like it. I, I give, you know, the, the secret to wrestling is not doing what everybody else is doing. Is not doing what they saw last week on Monday TV and then going into school and doing whatever you just saw. Uh, you know, I really teach my kids to stand out, to be original, to take pride in what they do, to really have some substance behind them. And, and you know, everybody wants to talk about their gimmick, and you still need to learn all the technique behind it and then have a gimmick and then be able to cut the promos. But you really need to have a technical prowess uh, that I think a lot of schools lack because you can do it, you can throw a suplex before you can do wrist lock counters and really good chain wrestling, have really good pins, original pins and I you know I just um, love getting to work one-on-one I I have less than 10 students right now basically four beginners and four advanced students and it's a great it's a great place to learn Uh, I actually sidojo.com people can go on there and and, uh, get my merch and stuff but in addition to that I'm selling something that for young wrestlers who want to go to wrestling school but they're intimidated and they're afraid and they don't know like how to get in shape for wrestling school. I've got an eight week program that they can do. It's got like footwork drills, yoga, all sorts of stuff that will prepare you physically, you know, build your strength and flexibility. So that way when day one of wrestling school shows up, they want you to do 50 squats and 50 burpees and then go in there and hit the ropes. You're, you're going to die less quick than everybody else. You know, you're going to survive this first week. You're going to survive the first month of wrestling school and you're going to learn to love it. And if you do my free wrestling program and it's too hard for you, then, you know, then you really don't have the mindset for wrestling. It's challenging, but it's, it builds from the ground up. It builds all these abilities. So that way, when it's time to hit those first quarter rolls, you know, you're able to do these, these basic things that, and then, and then I, you know, my, my policy is with this, my eight week prep course for wrestling school is don't, you don't have to tell anyone you did it. You just, that, you just show up like that. And then right. they'll, they'll never know. You know, I like to work in the dark. Like you don't see me posting pictures of my school. We're doing all this work and doing all this. Hey, we, we're going to save it for when the show happens and the spotlights on us. And then we're just going to blow you out of the water with no expectations because the higher you raise your expectations, you know, oh, these guys from my school, they're the best wrestlers you've ever seen then you're just going to expect the best. And if they deliver, then they're just delivering what you expect. But if some guy like out of nowhere, like a couple of my kids had a chance to do AEW dark and Tony Donati hits this suplex that nobody's ever seen before. Um, you know, it's enough to catch the eye of the guys backstage and sort of, it makes them want to get invited back and uh, starting them down the path to becoming stars, starting them down the path to getting contracts is, is equally as gratifying for me as it is as myself being in the ring and getting the contracts. Just like if I see Trevor Trevor Lee or Ricochet, everything they accomplish, like for me, it's just as like meaningful as me accomplishing it. Actually, even more because they care even more than me. Like they care even more about it than I do. And it's like being a part of their ride uh, is just as special to me as doing it myself. Now, it's interesting you say that about the training course because uh, at the schools, we have a lot of people, I get a lot of emails and they ask, what can I do to get in shape? My answer has always been, you know, I guess running, squats, burpees, but there's been, there's no way to tell someone because truthfully there really is no way to get in shape to prepare for wrestling school. So having a program like that, you know, and then also I see a lot of, not, I don't know if, if you have the same experience, but a lot of the guys and girls that come in that are attracted to pro wrestling and want to start their training, you know, most of them, from my experience, don't have the best athletic background. And they go through that first day or second day and things are just so over their head, they quit and never pursue it again. So having that course like seems like a 
really credible, smart thing for someone to do. Yeah, being a dreamer in wrestling is admirable, but everybody has passion. Everybody loves it. Everybody wants it. But the people who think that you go from A to Z in like six weeks, they're out of their minds. For me, it's about hard work over a long period of time and and really outworking everybody else. But if you don't have any information, you don't know. So you show up to your first day of wrestling school and they want you to do a headlock takeover. But when you build your base, you just collapse underneath yourself. So it's like my prep course gets people ready to make the shapes. We build the muscle memory. So that way, when you're going in there and they ask you to do a sit out, you've already been doing, you know, 40 sit outs a week at minima or whatever it is. You know, we've got you doing all, all these things that are that really prep your body to start learning in the ring. And so, yeah, you know, you can let them all know SciDojo.com. It's like a series of weekly videos that basically you get in your email and then you follow the workout, work out with me and you get a chance to just sweat it out and see, see your mental, t- you know, it is about building the mental toughness. Cause it, I mean, in wrestling from day one, all I did was get picked on, get made fun of, get told I wasn't good enough. And you know, the mental toughness that I needed was just the ability to ignore them and the ability to, to trust in myself and my, that I was just gonna, you know, that whatever the naysayers in my local indie said, I, you know, realizing that it more came from their jealousy or their their lack of self-confidence picking on me. You know, and the same thing at OVW. It was just like this cutthroat world of everybody just shitting on everybody and just a lot of, you know, not, not the highest level of personal, like, uh, interactions. Like, there was animosity. And, uh, right. you know, I, I want to breed that out of wrestling. I mean, that's what our generation came up trying to do was like make wrestling something that it was for everybody wrestling that you could show to your friends who don't like wrestling they tune in and they would think it's cool like, you know they could they could tolerate watching it that they're then they might even get hooked on it um and you know that's what i want to do i want to grow a new generation of wrestling fans and you take this new generation of wrestling fans that we have you want to open the door and give them that possibility of really um you know, being being able to survive in the in wrestling for more than you know six weeks, and then oh, I just got the crap beat out of me at wrestling school, and I quit. Well, that like the reason guys love football is because they played high school football, so they might not ever make it to the NFL, but they understand the sport a little bit better. And so, for people to go to a wrestling school and understand wrestling a little bit better, it's going to make them a stronger fan, and then they're going to want to pass that on to their next generation, their kids, and their kids will pass it on to their kids because. They, they feel it like they connect deeper with wrestling. Um, and, you know, for me, like being in the ring is like the most magical thing in the world. So, yeah, I just want to share that with more people. You just said before that you're one of these guys who don't say no. Even when you're hurt, you just keep wrestling. I mean, obviously, we're all going through this pandemic right now. Would you say the last like three months of like being forced not to wrestle, like you notice a huge change in your body? Do you feel like you're fo- finally healing from all these nagging injuries? Yeah, I mean, like, the, the thing with, like, therapy and stuff is I'm doing, like, you know, when you get hurt, you start, you have to start all the way back at zero. And so, like, being a guy who I used to, b- before the pandemic, I was pressing my five-pound dumbbells overhead, but ch- but it was challenging on the on the negative, like, on the come down, like, to keep, keep my arm from just quitting on me. Wow. Um, and, and, like, yesterday I pressed 60 pounds over my head. So, I mean, that, that's huge. I'm not where I'd like to be, but, I mean, I just remember going to the gym with Ricochet in, in Japan and, like, trying to keep up with these workouts. My shoulder would just be killing me so much, and now I can finish the workout and not be in pain. And so, for me, this is a significant difference, the, the ability to train and not be hurting afterwards and not need, there and not need like, constant extra work on it. Um, but, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm definitely better than ever healthier. I mean, not being on the road is so good for your diet. I thrive under a good routine. I mean, all the keys to success that I had that got me to WWE, which was like strong family support, psychopathic work ethic, and a dojo down the street. uh, All those things made me really good and really good wrestlers surrounding me. Like that's what got me to the top the first time. And that's where I'm at right now. But I wasn't growing as a wrestler. I wasn't getting in the ring with Jamie Noble and rolling around like I used to. The tide had changed and people were looking to me to train them. And I was still looking to get better. Well, so I just wanted to, uh, before we go, I just wanted to ask you one question because we're both MMA fanatics and stuff like that. And the most interesting fight 
that uh, coming up that's officially booked would be in the future would be Gaethje and Khabib. Uh, I want I want your prediction on that because I said for a long time ago, me and Tyson Kidd had this conversation a long time ago, and I said literally from the Eddie Alvarez days where I said, I think the two people that have the style to beat Khabib is either Eddie Alvarez when he was still in UFC and and Justin Gaethje, meaning you need a wrestler that could stop his takedowns, but someone that could light him up on the feet with Eddie gone. And now it's kind of building up more and more where as it fights went on, I was like, it's going to be Justin Gaethje. If anyone's going to beat him, it's not going to be Ferguson. I disagreed with that from the start. I said, it's not going to be Tony. Like long before Tony Ford, I said, he, he could beat Tony. And then now Justin, the way Justin man- manhandled Tony, I think I, I don't think Tony would have be- beat Khabib, but I think I think Justin's going to be the guy to do it. And if he can, I don't think anybody can. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Justin really is the guy with the chance. And I think what he did with that performance against Tony Ferguson is he may have put that little seed of doubt in Khabib's head that oh shit, I, like this guy is a wild man, and I better be ready for 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 a guy who can like neutralize the timing of Tony Ferguson, right? That was what Tony Ferguson was going to use to beat Khabib was his good, you know, he was going to get in good timing. He's going to take him out on his feet. And I, I just think, uh, I listened to Gaethy and, um, his coach on the Rogan podcast and it was fascinating and they've got an amazing mindset, amazing training. And I, I think Khabib just is at a point where when you're the top guy for so long, you're, you might not be able to get pushed as hard, and there, there's he just has a lot of other things going on. Where uh, Gaethy is, he just is just doing his thing and improving and getting better. And yeah, I mean that, that I want to see that fight, but like I stopped I stopped expecting Khabib fights to actually happen. So I can't get my hopes up anymore. Like it just they just always seem to fall through. And but yeah, I mean. I, like I said, I don't bet on these fights, but it's one I will not miss. I would not miss that fight. I, I love watching athletes at the peak of their game, guys who who are puzzles that no one else can figure out, try and figure each other out. So, uh, what's your goal? I don't know. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but last night was the Amanda Nunes fight. Somebody actually bet $1 million on it. You saw that? Yes, of course. And it's crazy because I'm, I'm saying in my head, I was like, if I had $2 million just to my name, I would feel comfortable betting a million dollars on Amanda Nunes, even though it's only going to win 166000 It's like, if there's ever such thing as guaranteed money in MMA, Amanda Nunes virtually versus anybody right now, other than Shevchenko, is guaranteed money. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just, it, it, it reminded me of like Rousey versus the other girls way back in the day before yeah. they had leveled up. I mean, sure, in time, somebody's going to come up. But Nunes, she's got the right size. I mean, like at 135, I think people have a bigger chance of taking her on because of the the hard weight cut. And like, you never know. Maybe in the fifth round, she could get tired because she had to like take, you know, drain herself down to negative zero nutrients in her body the day before. Um, but you know, at 145, who's like, who who's gonna who's gonna pounce her? And I mean, I think you could tell like it's. Everything that sold that pay-per-view was not that title fight. It's nice to watch, uh, you know, it's good to watch Nunes add another uh, defense to her. But what sold that fight for me was the Cody fight and Sugar Sean. And really, I mean, I just like watching the prelims. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like watching every fight um, because it really the thing about MMA, what inspires me is I'll watch these guys and, you know, they're locked in a cage. It's life or death. It's all it's everything they've ever done their entire life accumulating in that cage every breakfast they ever had every day they took off and i feel like that when i wrestle i feel like even though wrestling is like a work obviously everything i've ever done adds up in that ring in terms of what i can do everything i've ever thought every idea i've ever had is like on display right there and so like i really feel for these guys when they go in the cage because they don't even know if they're going to win or lose like my god just the stress of that Holy cow, I have enough stress trying to think of my own. Like, you know, we already know what's going to happen. You know, you know who uh, who I'd be interested in, but she's also American top team, and I think she trains with Nunes down there. She's not even in UFC. The only interesting fight that is left for Nunes, in my opinion, is Kayla Harrison over at PFL, the judo girl, the judo, I think, Olympic gold medalist. Are you familiar? She won the million-dollar uh, PFL that used to be World Series of Fighting. Then they switch yeah. the name over to Pro Fight League. I think I think that I think she fights at 155. So I think if she cuts down to 45 to fight, I think that 
that would be the true test for Nunes. Because, like, right now, the landscape, when you said when Rousey was fighting, but even the people back then, like Sarah McMahon and all these girls, they were kind of Misha Tate and stuff like that, Holly Holm. They were, they were pretty decently well-known. Like, right now, you see there's Nunes sitting on top of 145 where there's nobody underneath there. There's not even a real division. They created that for Cyborg. And then 135, she absolutely obliterated anybody that's, you know, worth the crap to even challenge her for the belt. So, same thing Shevchenko's having at 125. There's nobody in that division that could challenge Shevchenko. Like, the, the ultimate fight would be, once again, to rerun the Valentina Nunes fight because a lot of fans feel that Valentina rightfully, and I looked at the fight metrics where it had Valentina winning that last fight against Nunes on the scoreboard, and they slided it towards uh, Nunes. So, theoretically, it should be one and one. I mean, Valentina, that right now, though, the way those two built up, that's now, now more than ever, that's a super fight that the fans would be clamoring to see. Back then, Shevchenko wasn't a big name. Nunez wasn't a big name. Right now, if you did Shevchenko versus Nunez, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's like a 4th of July weekend, New Year's Eve fight. I mean, that, that's a big fight. But if I'm Nunez, like, I don't see why I would accept that fight. Like, it's way too dangerous. It's way too much work. And you already did it twice. And you, 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 you eat through it. And it's just like, hey, what? Like, don't make me prove myself to you again. Like, you know, if, you know, she might take the fight a year down the line or two years, but like just to go to that as like her next fight, I mean, I, I, it's just, it's just tough. It's like, what do you, what do you do with a monster like that? But that judo throw she did, she hit on um, the girl last night, you know, that wouldn't, that, that won't work on your, what's that girl's name? Kayla Harrison. On Kayla Harrison. So it'd be, it'd be good to find somebody to neutralize her, especially somebody that could maybe manhandle, manhandle her around, push her around a little bit. Um, It'd be interesting to see. I'm like, I, I like watching. I really like watching Amanda Nunes fight. I mean, I love that right hand she throws, and she just like her accuracy. I mean, she's always putting it on these girls' ears, just drilling them over and over and over again. Her uppercut. I was like, oh, she's gonna throw an uppercut, and boom, she rocked it with an uppercut. I mean, uh, I I do think like a really good striker, somebody who has some Muay Thai experience, might be able to see a few of her shots coming. Um, but it's like, can you get out of the way of them anyway? If you're trying to engage and hit her, are you going to be able to get out of the way in time? Because she's not slow. She's fast. So yeah. Yo, not only that, though, Felicia Spencer, because you got to factor in those shots she was laying on Felicia Spencer are the same shots that took out Rousey, took out Cyborg, took out Holly Holm, took out Misha Tate, all in the first round, put them all to sleep. So yeah. this girl was eating these shots for five rounds. This girl's a tough cookie, man. She got hit with them in that first round. Like the, the, the shot that floored Cyborg, she took the same shot and was still standing. I mean, like literally the same one that Cyborg went like face down on. She could handle it. But it's like once she got hit, she didn't want to she didn't want to like uh, her reaction. Her best reaction would have been um, changing her game plan or thinking of like trying to be aggressive in a, in a different way. But she kind of just stuck to the thing where she was kind of just a punching dummy who who tried to get close. I mean, she just seemed outmatched strength-wise. I mean, she – I don't know. And it seemed like she kind of had her chin out a little bit more. Like, Nunez really keeps her chin low and in place. And it, it seemed to me like Felicia, when she was trying to close the distance, would, would reach with her chin as she was reaching with her hands too. And that really made her susceptible to the, those monster, monster right hands. But I think that's why she got caught with the uppercuts a couple times too. She would she would come in. She was like because she's thinking like, hey, if I wrestle, you come in with your head and then you shoot that single leg. So if I'm her, I would do the Dan Henderson. You you go low like you're going for that uh, leg and you boom bring it up top. You know, uh, I I think she should go train with Dan Henderson, <laughs> who's like right, my so favorite I mean, fighter of all time. Sorry, I was gonna say, did you see Dan Lambert in the crowd at AEW the other week? No, I didn't. Seriously, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, because they were all in Jacksonville. Yeah, and then uh, I remember I looked at the screen. And I was like, "Is that Dan Lambert?" At the same time, Pat texts me. He's like, "Is that Dan Lambert in the crowd?" Everyone's like, yeah, "Wait, what?" So yeah. And, then, and then the next week, Vitor Belfort and Sugar Rashad Evans are in the ring, and like Cejudo's in the ring at AEW. I was like, "This is the coolest shit I've ever seen." I mean, it's just it's so fun letting stuff like that happen. I mean, it's just I, I love it when MMA and wrestling mix because to all the all the guys really get along. And I mean, I I'm inspired by pro wrestlers. I'm inspired by guys like. Phoenix and Pentagon, and I and then I get inspired by all these MMA fighters because they push the human, like they changed what human bodies are capable of. They've changed the like, and they force wrestling to even change what is strong. It's not about being big. You watch these. I mean, when when GSP 
I mean, he's big, he's a big guy, but it was for me at being a wrestler in WWE claiming I was 175 pounds. Uh, it was like, come on, look at the, these 175 pounders are main eventing 185 pounders are main eventing UFC. Why can't we do it in wrestling? Uh, you know, and, and because they're ass kickers, you know what I mean? Like people should be afraid of them cause they whoop them, you know what I mean? So, so will I just kidding. Uh, but I, I was just trying to get in my last uh, plug for side dojo, S Y D O J O side Check it out. I mean, seriously, um, this course, it's like, it really, I haven't officially launched it. Like the website's live, but, uh, I'm kind of just finishing editing week seven and eight of the videos. But if you order, I've got weeks one through six already ready to go. So people, people get that. And I mean, if you, if people want to get in the ring and wrestling, I want to really empower them to do so safely. Like, because you know, the, the best thing about wrestling is doing it safely. I went nine years crazy indie wrestling, backyard wrestling. Well, if you count my backyard wrestling, 10 or 12 years before I ever got hurt. And I really think it's possible to do pro wrestling safely and, and, and do it yourself. Part of my personal philosophy, my belief system is like, turn off the TV. Don't listen to the podcast. Don't watch the interview. Create your own interviews. Create your own podcast. Create your own wrestling federation in your backyard. Get your friends together. Get a ring and do it yourself. Um, because that's where you're going to get that, um, I don't know, pleasure, but you're going to get satisfaction from it more so than trying to join somebody else's thing and just be a spoke on the wheel when you can be the whole wheel. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for being on. And, uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, hopefully see you soon somewhere. Yeah, right, probably but... on cops or something. No, Hey, thank you guys for the podcast. I, I appreciate you guys. And, uh, you know, if I, if you ever need me on again, I'm always down to chat. Sounds great, man. SideDojo.com. Thanks, Matt, and uh, appreciate Brother. it. Hey, man. Later, buddy. Peace, love, pro wrestling. Hey, Kevin, don't lay down on the job, pal. <laughs> love you. Bye. Later, bud. Later, man. I want to give a big thank you to Matt Seidel for taking the time to be on the Pat Buck Show. Once again, you can check out all the extra stuff at patreon.com slash patbuckshow. I'd like to give a big thank you to Matt, but as well, Superstar KM, Kevin Matthews on Twitter, the team of GoPro Wrestling at GoPro Wrestling, myself, the mantra is the same as the social media, which is Buck Never Stops. Thanks for tuning in. Leave a review, rate, subscribe, do all that jazz, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Buzz killer.